So I want to I survey this passage, and, and really I'm going to focus on verse 15. It's been most of my time there in verse 15, but we'll quickly work through 12 through 14 first, and then close with verses 16 and 17. Um, when, I, when I think about this passage and why it's helpful to us, um, I'm reminded of the book of James. And in James chapter 4, he asks this challenging question. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And then he goes on to explain that we are self-entitled, self-seeking, self-righteous sinners. And that's what causes the quarrels and fights. We want what we think we deserve. We have a high view of ourselves, and we think we deserve a lot. We often place ourselves in the position of judge of other people and quickly condemn others in pursuit of our own self-interest. We think that we're in control of everything, that we know everything. And we define our own morality based on our own desires. But we live lives of hypocrisy by changing the standard, standard of morality to fit our ever-changing actions and desires. This daily plays out in our lives, but we're often blind to it. We have fits of anger or jealousy, condemning others, justifying, justifying our actions, putting others down or judging others. Our natural position or default thought towards others is often that we're right and they're wrong. Married couples, listen up, oftentimes you see your spouse as the problem and you think that if my spouse would just change, they would just change the things that are wrong with them, then our marriage would be good. The problem is with my spouse. We're inclined to think that we are righteous and the person we're mad at or fighting with is the one who is foolish or, or sinful. Maybe we have a certain level of humility and we think, well, I might be bad, but certainly they're worse. And as long as we're not as bad as the worst person, then we're all right. It's kind of like running from a bear in the woods, right? You don't have to be the fastest person, but you just don't want to be the slowest don't have to be the most righteous person, you just got to be, as long as you're not the worst sinner. But Paul has a different view of himself, and a different way of thinking about this, and we find it here in this passage. But first we need to understand the context, so let's look at verses 12 through 14 again. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's writing an instructive letter to Timothy on how to lead the church and how to be a minister of the gospel. And in our passage this morning, he's re briefly recounting uh, his call to ministry and the reason for it. Namely, that it was completely of God's grace. It's God's grace and God's mercy, and not because Paul was inherently good or talented or useful. No, he says it was completely of God. Look, I thank him who has given me strength. He says, first and foremost, I thank God for giving me strength to do this thing. It wasn't that Paul was strong. No, God made him strong. And through that strength, he made him faithful. And therefore, God gave him the 
apostolic ministry that he has, that position of apostleship. Paul was not qualified or particularly useful for ministry in and of himself. But it was God who qualified him for ministry and made him useful. If you're not sure that's exactly what he's saying, look at verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. What is he saying? He's saying, I was totally useless before. Worse than useless, I was an opponent. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of God's church. Not just a persecutor, but a violent one, trying to stamp out God's church. His whole identity was wrapped up in destroying the name of Jesus before God intervened. His whole thing. He was mad. He was crazed with this idea of destroying the church, and he thought he was doing the right thing. He was fanatical in his mission. And this is really beyond human wisdom, that God would look out at the available human beings to him. Who, who am I going to use to lead my church and to start this new church? Who am I going to, This is mind-boggling to me, that God would look at all of the available people to him, which is everyone, And he looks at Paul and says, yeah, that's the one right there. This man who is violently killing off my church. That's the one I want to use. It would be like me giving my newborn baby to like, I don't know, like an ex-con or something. Like, hey, raise my child. That's absurd. But God is so gracious that while yet we were still sinners and enemies of God, He saved us. God in his mercy looked at Paul and said that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. What an amazing statement. Amazingly merciful and understanding God we have. To genuinely say that Paul didn't really know what he was doing. So compassionate of God to look at him. It's not saying that God excused what Paul was doing or said it wasn't It was okay because he didn't know. No, it was still wrong. Paul was still guilty and condemned for what he did. But God in his mercy had compassion on this crazed man. Let's let that sink in for a second. How quick are we to write off and put aside someone because we think that they should know better? If anybody should know better, it was Paul. Paul should have known better he should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. All of the, all that we look at the New Testament, the Gospels, and obvious that Jesus was the Messiah. He should have known better, and yet he didn't. We oftentimes look at other people and say, they should know better than to act that way. They should know better than to treat me that way. And we write them off. But Jesus, in his mercy, doesn't write Paul off. Instead, he shows compassion on him and says, didn't know. He wasn't acting in faith. So he intervenes in Paul's life, saves him, fills his heart with faith and love. The very faith that he needed, Jesus gave to him. You see, God hasn't made us judges either. There's only one judge, judge that's God. Our job is to have compassion and to preach the gospel of salvation. That's our job. Our job is not to write people off because they should have known better. We're to speak the truth as to law and righteousness, certainly. But it's the Holy Spirit who convicts and guides.
God who condemns, not us. God wants to show mercy, mercy to the ruthless. That's his prerogative. We should always be praying that he shows mercy. We shouldn't pray for the condemnation of those people. Pray that God would show mercy like he showed it to Paul. Certainly there's a person in your life who has treated you wrongly, has been violent or unfair to you. Maybe they gossip or slander about you without cause. But that was Paul towards Jesus. God chose to show Paul mercy, have compassion on him. To a degree, that was us before Christ intervened. Slandering God. And yet he showed compassion on us. But I want to keep moving forward because I want to focus in on verse 15 because Paul says something even more profound. Look closely at verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Okay, let's stop right there real quick. That's the gospel. Like, if you want to say the gospel in one sentence, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. Okay? So when you're like membership interview and you have to share the gospel with the elders and you're really nervous and you don't know what else to say, just say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. Okay? Just hear a little... So those who are chuckling went through that membership interview and know how nerve-wracking it can be. It shouldn't be, by the way, but it is. It's okay. But then he says this amazing statement. He says, of whom I am the foremost. I like the King James. It says, of whom I am the chief of sinners, is what it says. I am the chief of sinners. This is a remarkable statement. Now, many commentators uh, take this in one of two ways. They either say this is hyperbole. Um, that is that it's not an objective fact, but Paul Paul is using hyper, hyperbolic language to to ex, to magnify how bad of a sinner that he is. I don't think that's really what Paul is saying. The other way they they explain this is to say that well, it's just his guilty conscience from his former life. Like he was, as he just admitted, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So his his guilty conscience over what he was. Uh, is bleeding into his present now, and he feels like he's the, the, the worst sinner. But that's, that's not, I don't think, what he's saying. That's not the most straightforward way to read this. Because certainly there were Pharisees who were uh, trying to kill him, and their, their intents probably were more wicked than Paul's. And then there were worse persecutors than Paul. I mean, Paul, sure, he condoned Steve's, Stephen's uh, murder, but what about the people who were throwing the stones? What about the people who hung Jesus on the cross? There were certainly people who were more violently angry towards the church. What's interesting about this statement is that he says it in the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Right now. That's remarkable. I think it's remarkable for two reasons. One, because of his position and status in the church, the apostle. And two, we look at his sin in the present, and we don't think it's very bad by comparison to ours. We look at Paul and be like, oh, I'm definitely doing worse things than Paul's doing. Yeah, if 
he's not the chief of sinners. And oh boy. But let's look more deeply at this. Who is Paul? To make this statement even more remarkable, we need to really understand who he was. Certainly he was a great apostle, was a Bible author. He wrote at least 13 books of the Bible. That's 20% of the books of the Bible Paul wrote, the chief of sinners wrote. He planted at least 14 churches that we know of. How many churches have you guys planted? I'm going to guess maybe a couple of you were here for this church, so that's one. So he's got 13 on you. He counseled with and was highly respected and loved by the other apostles. He sacrificed everything for the sake of the gospel. His wealth, his status, his physical body, even his comfort, his ease, even all of his time. Everything, absolutely everything was for the kingdom of God. This man was completely all in on the kingdom of God. Everything about his life was about the kingdom of God. Chief of sinners. So how could that godly man be the chief of sinners? You need to understand a little bit more about Paul. He was well-educated, he was smart, and he was quick-witted. As a Pharisee, he received the best education, top-notch, Ph.D.-type level. He was smart. Peter admits that Paul's arguments are difficult to understand. So Peter's like, I don't even get half the time what Paul's talking about. He confuses everybody. Super smart guy. He could walk into any situation and know exactly what to say to expose people's faulty motives and thinking and just tear down their arguments. He was quick. Walk into a city, survey it. All right, here's how we're going to approach this. Boom, 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 boom. But all of his natural, natural ability was in many ways a liability, not an asset for God. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 says, is Paul writing, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, he set all of his expertise in the law and everything that he knew, he set it all aside, and he just said, I'm just going to preach the simple gospel. Simple, the simple gospel. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. That's all I know. But what about your pharisaical knowledge and the education and all the things Jesus Christ and him crucified that's what I know the rest of that that's a liability Philippians 3 8 says indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ all of his previous accomplishments his gifts his skills etc he counted them as garbage when it came to serving Christ. And I've, I've heard people say this, and, I, and I've even said it myself. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if this famous person were to come to Christ? All of their power, their influence, their money. Think of what they could do for the kingdom of God if they would just repent and believe. What's Paul's perspective on that? All that stuff is a liability. If you come to Christ, you better leave all that behind. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said all that stuff was garbage. God threw it all out, put it in the trash, and brought Him to nothing. 
so that God's power might be shown through Paul's weakness. And Paul struggled it with it. Paul struggled with pride because he was used by God in such amazing ways meant that Paul was constantly tempted towards pride. He struggled with arrogance, a particularly dangerous form of pride. Because of all he knew then, all he had, all he had done for God, his prominent position in the church, all of these had made him tempted towards thinking much of himself. And I imagine there were probably times where he gave into that temptation. From Romans 7.15, when he's talking, he's writing his letter to the Romans, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. He's talking about his pride. He's talking about his sin. Saying, I know what's right to do, and yet I still do the wrong thing. I know I should not think much of myself. I know that Christ saved me, that I had nothing to do with it. And yet, I am tempted to think much of myself, to think that God is using me because I'm great or I'm awesome or I'm helpful to him. But God was gracious to Paul. God was gracious to Paul in combating that pride. How? Well, we often think of God's grace as being relief from physical or emotional pain. But for Paul, God's grace was allowing him to continue in pain and suffering and giving Paul his strength to endure it. This kept Paul humble and close to the Lord. Rather than sinking into sin and self-righteous uselessness, which is what he was just saved from, Paul allowed him, or God allowed Paul to suffer. And for that, Paul rejoiced. Let's look at, turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Read verses 7 through 10 with me. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is Paul's perspective. That the sufferings are God's grace to him, to keep him from becoming prideful. The original sin, Adam in the garden, was pride. It's dangerous. The arrogance of Paul was dangerous to him. And he knew it. And so God afflicts his body. And he rejoices in that. So that God may be magnified. And, God, and that Paul would stay close to the Lord, saying, I need God because I am so weak and frail and sinful. But is a little pride really deserving of the title of chief of sinners? Was Paul's sin really so bad? Well, let's take a quick survey of Paul's view of himself as, matu- as he matures in the faith. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about AD 55, let's say, roughly AD 55. 1 Corinthians 15, 
8 and 9, he says this. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Persecuted the church of God. No doubt he carried some emotional baggage of his past. Imagine there's a few of you in here, if not just a few, who carry the baggage of your past, your sinful past. And it reminds you of what you've been forgiven of, and that's wonderful. And, and Paul certainly knew that and walked in it, never forgot it. It kept him humble. He knew he didn't deserve to be made an apostle. He said, I, I was against these guys, and God saved me from it. Of all the apostles, of all 12 of them, I'm the worst one. I'm the least of them. I'm the least important. That's his perspective in AD 55. Literally translated, he says that he is as useful as an aborted, stillborn child. Those are some intense and sobering words he uses about himself. But that's how he thought of himself in relation to the other apostles. Insignificant, not important, not helpful, not useful. In and of himself, the least of the apostles. Then five years later, roughly AD 60, he writes Ephesians. Ephesians 3.8. He says this, To me, though I am the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Five years later, he goes from being the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. Of all of the believers, Paul says, of all of the believers, I I'm the lowest one. I don't deserve to be uh, served. I should serve everybody else. Of, of the list of priorities, I'm the bottom one. He doesn't expect anybody to serve him or suffer for him. He is going to suffer for everybody because he is the lowest of all of the saints. And then we get to our passage, written roughly AD 63, so about three years later. And he says... I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost sinner. See the progression from the least of the apostles to saying, I'm the least of the saints. And at the end of his life, he says, I'm the greatest sinner. How is this possible? He was well educated in the perfect law of God. He knew the commands of God better than anybody. Not only that, he had the Holy Spirit inside his heart. He's made his heart alive, regenerated his heart. He knew the law, not just under, knew it, but he understood it. He loved it. And he had the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit inside of him, convicting him of sin and leading him to righteousness. He saw Jesus face to face. Right? Jesus appeared to him. He saw, like how many of us would love to see Jesus face to face? How much would that increase our faith and our desire for righteousness? Paul saw Jesus. He got to walk alongside and talk with the other apostles. And, hey, what did you hear? What happened with Jesus? What? He knew all the stories. He firsthand got to experience the power of God as he performed miracles and healed people, rose somebody from the dead. How amazing would it be? How much would that increase your faith and your desire to be righteous if you literally raised somebody from the dead? Would you ever doubt again? 
He saw a perfect vision of paradise with his own eyes. He was taken up to the third heaven. He saw heaven. He knew what was coming. How great would your faith be if you knew what heaven really was? We have a, a, a few descriptions, some vague descriptions of what heaven... We know it's going to be good because it is God's there. Paul saw it. He knew. And yet, look at Romans. Romans 7. Verse 21 through 24, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, I, I, I know what to do. I know what's right. And yet I still sin. How egregious is my sin? He says, I know better than anybody here what it is to be righteous and why I should be righteous. I even love to be righteous. I want to do that. And yet I still sin. Despite all of his advantages, he found that he still gave in to the temptation of the flesh and sinned. How much more egregious is that sin than somebody who has no idea who much is given, much is required. If you're not a believer, but you hear this morning and you hear the gospel, or you've grown up in the church and you've heard the gospel proclaimed over and over again, you should turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is a warning to those who grew up in the church, tasted the goodness of God, but rejected it. How much more severe will your punishment be in hell? There are different levels of punishment in hell. All sin is condemnable by hell. But in hell, Luke 12, 47-48 says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from, to him, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is not teaching a works-based salvation by any means, or that you can lose your salvation. Neither one of those things is true. But it's a warning to those who think they are saved but are not. It's a warning to those who have sat under the gospel, who have heard truth proclaimed over and over again and yet rejected it. Who have tasted what it is to be in the community of God, to, be, to see the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, to see the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God available to them and yet rejected it. It's a warning. For us believers, 
How egregious is it when we sin? We know better. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. The power to withstand temptation. To taste the goodness and the grace and the forgiveness of God and yet sin. How egregious is our sin? How long does Paul stay there? Go back to 1 Timothy. How long does Paul stay in that moment of mourning his sin, of saying, I am the foremost sinner? About as long as it takes him to take a breath. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's important that we understand our sinfulness, but it's just as important that we move past it. If we stay there, if we stay mourning our sin, beating ourselves up about how bad and terrible we are, it leads to other forms of sin. Self-focus, depression, anxiety, doubt, sorrow, not what Paul does. And the purpose of Paul reflecting on his own present sinfulness is threefold. To humble himself, to be a realistic example of what it means to be a Christian, and ultimately to further God's mercy and glory and forgiveness. And the purpose for him is not to beat himself up or disparage himself. Matter of fact, it has very little to do with you. Right? When we reflect on our own sin, that reflecting on our own sin has very little to do with us. We humble ourselves quickly, certainly. But it has more to do with others. But mostly it's about God. Your continued sinfulness should point not to yourself, but to your Savior, who has completely forgiven you under the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. Immediately he turns to the mercy of God. He says, yes, I am the worst sinner, but I received mercy. Look, as Christians, we tend to want to hide or ignore our sin. We want to put on the appearance that we have it all together. We fear that if others see our sin or if they knew the whole truth about our sin, that we would be like kicked out of the church or that the church would be put to shame and the name of God would be put to shame. And that's true in one sense but only if you refuse to repent and turn from your sin. But if you acknowledge your sin and you repent of it and you turn from it and you acknowledge it openly to the people of God and to those who are unbelievers, it furthers God's glory. It's an example to those who will believe of what is possible for them. If they can look at you and you can say, hey, I know better. I know what I ought to do, and yet I still sin. And he says, you can say to them, that is forgiveness for you too. You don't even know better. He can forgive you. If he can forgive me, he can certainly forgive you, and he's offering it to you today. How many of us in our evangelistic conversations are really open about our own sin? Would we try to give the appearance that we have it all together as Christians, that we are morally upright? 
That was Paul's greatest selling point. He says, I'm a sinner. Right now, I'm a sinner. But I've been saved by grace. And you too can be saved by grace. If he, he says, if, if Christ is able to cover my sins, he can definitely cover yours. Because mine are way worse. All of this causes Paul to just erupt with praise to God. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His understanding of the magnitude of his own sin in the present causes him to break out in praise to the king of ages. It doesn't cause him to be depressed. It doesn't cause him to go and be just self-effacing. No, he just breaks out in praise to God. If your sorrow over your sin turns to self-reflections, inward thoughts, it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes that conviction and turns it to praise to God. He announces the amazing character of God, immortal, invisible, one God, the only one deserving of honor and glory. That is the God who saved us. Dear Christian, do you understand how much of a sinner you are sitting here today? Do you understand how egregious your sin is? As you know better, you understand the gospel. You were saved by the gospel. You were filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet you still sin. And now we move on from that. the praise of God. We don't go and look to judge and condemn others as they don't measure up or compare to us. No, we turn to the praise of God who would save a wretched sinner like us. We should sing the praises of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he would save and continue to keep his covenant with us despite our sins. Poor sinner, Are you rejecting the clear gospel of Jesus Christ that's been delivered to you? That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? You're rejecting that message this morning. There is a place reserved for you in hell unless you repent and turn. And it will be more difficult for you than the person in the jungle who has never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Sinner, repent now. He's calling you to be honest and real about your sin, to forsake it and turn from it. Eternal life can be yours in Jesus Christ if you just repent and believe. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we love you you first loved us we were enemies of you and yet you decided to come in and save us just like you did with Paul Um, Lord we we don't deserve it we haven't earned it but we are so grateful for it that you would save us Um, Lord we as believers know better than to sin we have every advantage every possibility to not sin and yet still do. And yet your grace abounds. Your mercy overflows. We are not immediately cut off and condemned because salvation is by you and you alone. And you
keep your promises. We thank you for that, Lord. We love you for that. We praise you for that. You are so good and great. Lord, help us to walk in that truth, to sing your praises. Lord, we pray for those who have not put their faith in you, that you would work in their heart, that you would make their heart come alive, that they would have faith and repent of their sins and find salvation in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. battling a little bit of sickness all week, and so I'm over it, mostly, but I have a little bit of lingering cough and sniffle, so I apologize now for any uh, annoyance that may cause, but uh, hopefully you'll overlook that and and hear from God's Word this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I want to survey the whole passage, but I want to focus in on verse 15 primarily, Um, and uh, once the gentlemen finish Collecting and passing, uh, we will read from God's Word. Uh, this letter is a letter from Paul to Timothy, and uh, Paul's sort of passing the baton to Timothy, and Timothy is going to pick it up. And uh, so these are some more instructions from Paul to Timothy on what it is to be a minister of God's Word and to proclaim the gospel. And so that's what we're going to 
take a minute to look at from Paul. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12 down to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted, ig- acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we turn to you this morning and by your hope and expectation that you will speak to us through your word. Lord, I ask that you would purify my lips and my heart, that I uh, may speak truth from your word, that I wouldn't have my own intentions, my own desires, but that I would set all that aside in the hopes that you would be glorified this morning. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would also open the hearts and minds of everyone listening, that they would take their cares and burdens and set them before you. They would set aside the distractions that are burdening their heart, that they could hear your word and how you want to transform our lives. May you be gracious to me this morning and merciful, Lord, strengthen my voice, my mind, distraction from your word. May you be blessed and glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe maybe seated. Thank you. As I looked at this passage and was excited to preach it, I also thought, well, why is this passage particularly helpful to us? And I was reminded of what James says in James chapter 4 when he asked this question. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He then goes on to say in the following chapter, or in the remaining chapter, he says that we are self-entitled, self-seeking, self-righteous sinners. And that's what causes fights among us. That we want what we think we deserve, and we have a high view of ourselves, and therefore we think we deserve quite a bit. And so we fight because we didn't get what we wanted. We also often place ourselves in the position of a judge over others and quickly condemn others in pursuit of our own self-interest causing more quarrels and fights. We think we are in control of everything and we know everything. We define our own morality based on our own desires, but we live lives of hypocrisy because we change the standard of morality to fit whatever our changing actions and desires are. And this is what James is presenting to us. Now, this daily lives plays itself out in our lives. We're often blind to it. We have fits of anger and jealousy condemnation of others, justification of our own actions, put others down and judging others. Our natural position, our default position, is to say that that we're right and that they're wrong. Whoever it is we're fighting with, they're in the wrong and we're clearly in the right. That's our default position. Married couples, oftentimes we see our spouse as the problem. If our spouse would just change the things that are wrong about themselves, then our marriage would be wonderful. 
we're inclined to think that we are righteous and the person we're mad at or fighting with is the one who is a foolish, sinful person. Now, maybe there's a level of humility and we think, well, I might be bad, but they are worse. And as long as we aren't as bad as the worst person, then we're all right. It's kind of like running from a bear, right? You don't have to be the fastest person, but you can't be the slowest. I don't have to be the most righteous person as long as I'm not the biggest sinner. But Paul has a different way of thinking about himself. As we look to our passage, I want to quickly survey verses 12 through 14. So let's reread those. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So here Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, instructing him on how to lead a church, how to be a minister of the the gospel. And so Paul briefly recounts here in our passage his call to ministry and the reason for it. Namely, that it was completely of God and nothing of himself. That it was completely God's grace and mercy that called him into ministry, not because Paul was some uh, useful, helpful, exceptional human being. He wasn't. He was saying, no, on the contrary, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent man. It was completely God's strength. God strengthened me for this. It wasn't that Paul was strong. It wasn't even that Paul was faithful. God counted him as faithful. He strengthened him and gave him what he, the very thing he lacked. Paul was acting ignorantly without faith. And God saved him, intervened in his life, saved him, and gave him the faith and the love that he needed for the apostleship. God qualified an unqualified man. God made a useless man a useful man. And Paul gives all the credit to God. Rightfully so. If you're not sure that's what he's saying, look closely at verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemy, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, blaspheming the God whom he claimed to worship, persecuting that God's church. And not just persecuting, but violently. That's that third word. is a violent He's violently trying to stamp out God's church. His whole identity was wrapped up in destroying God's church. He would literally, literally travel from city to city to try and stir up people against the Christians and get them thrown in jail. He was fanatical. He was crazed with his mission. And this is the part that's beyond human wisdom. I I just can't understand this, that God would look out on all of humanity and say, okay, who do I want to help me? Who do I want to serve me to help me bring about this church, this new thing that I'm doing? Who is the best person? And he looks at Paul, his biggest enemy, and says, that's the guy. That's the guy I want to use. Defies human reason. It would be something like if I had a newborn baby, my baby is just born, and I say to an ex-con, hey, I want you to go raise my child. 
No. To me, that makes no sense. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, saves Paul and says, I want you to do this. Not because you're qualified, not because of your, what you've done in the past, but because of his own gracious, merciful choice. That while we were yet enemies, God saved us. God, in his mercy, looked at Paul and said that he was acting ignorantly and in unbelief. What an amazing, merciful understanding God we have. To genuinely say to Paul that he didn't really know what he was doing. How compassionate of God to say that. Now, God's not excusing his actions as though what he was doing was okay because he didn't know. He's saying, no, it was condemnable. Certainly, it was wrong, objectively. But God in his compassion doesn't just write him off. In his mercy, he draws him in and saves him. He saved this crazed, fanatical man and brought him into his kingdom. Now let's take a moment to let that sink in. Because how quickly are we to write somebody off who should have known better? Someone hurts us. Someone attacks us. Someone accuses us. Somebody does something wrong. And you say, they should have known better. I'm done with them. Well, Paul should have known better. Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament. He knew what it was, what the Messiah was, he was looking for. He should have known that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Everything made sense in it he didn't know. God says because he didn't have faith. And so God doesn't just write him off. He draws him in. He shows compassion to him. Intervenes in his life. Fills him with the faith and the love that he needed for the ministry God was going to call him to. See, we, we tend to want to make a, make a judgment and say, ah, I'm going to write that person off. They should know better. There's no more mercy for that person. They should know better. God hasn't called us to be judges. See, there's one judge. It's God. Our job is to have compassion and to preach the gospel of salvation. That is forgiveness for sins. It's the Holy Spirit. It's His job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's our job to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Yes, we are to proclaim what is right and what is wrong, but it is God's job to judge. So we should always be praying that God would show mercy to the ruthless instigators to the angry violent men who would oppose us to pray that God would show mercy for them and let God be the judge certainly there's a person in your life who has treated you wrongly who's been violent or unfair towards you perhaps they gossip or slander about you without cause and that was Paul towards Jesus wasn't it to slander God but God chose to show him mercy and to have compassion on him. Now, to a degree, we're all like Paul, right? Before Christ saved us, we were blasphemers. But God showed compassion on us. But let's move forward, because there's something that's even more profound that I want to cover here. Look at verse 15. He says, 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Stop right there. That's the gospel, by the way. If you're in the membership meeting, you, you've gone through the three classes, and you're going to go do the membership. You have to sit before an elder and a deacon, and you have to then tell them the gospel. And if your mind goes blank, just do this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. Done. Okay, good. Now, there's more to it, obviously, than that. But if you want to put it down into one sentence, boom, there it is. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But then Paul makes this remarkable claim. He says, Of whom, that is sinners, I am the foremost. Paul says, I am the foremost sinner. The King James Version says, uh, Chief of sinners. Prefer that. I like that. That's what I grew up with. That's what I know. Chief of sinners. He is the chief, the most, the greatest, the biggest sinner of them all. Many commentators look at this and, and say, well, this is, this is hyperbole. This is exaggerated talk. He's saying, uh, it isn't like it's an objective fact. It's just that he's saying, I am such a big sinner uh, that I'm just, I guess I'm the chief of sinners. He doesn't actually mean it objectively. Or they'll say, uh, you know, he, it's his guilty conscience. Look, he was looking, he was just describing how he is a blasphemer, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. It's his guilty conscience from his past that, that still weighs on his heart and condemns him now. That's not consistent with the gospel either. I don't think it's his guilty conscience making him feel now like he's a chief of sinners. First of all, he says it in the present tense. He says, I am right now the chief of sinners. Not I was. He says, I am right now which is a remarkable statement for two reasons. One, because his position and status in the church. Right? He's the leader of the church. He's a, he's a leader of the church, and he's an apostle. And yet he says, I am presently the chief of sinners. How can he say that? And then two, because we look at it and we say, well, his sin doesn't seem that bad. It's certainly not worse than my sin. So how can he keep be the worst sinner? compared to ourselves. This doesn't make sense. And yet it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the plain, simple reading of this passage is that Paul is saying objectively, at this moment he's writing it, that he is the worst sinner. And so we want to understand how it is that he can make this claim. But to do that, and to see how remarkable this statement is, we need to know a little bit more about Paul. Paul, the great apostle, and Bible author, he wrote 13, at least 13 books of the Bible. That's 20% of the books of the Bible. He wrote them. He planted at least 14 churches that we know of. At least 14 churches that we know of. How many, have, uh, how many, plant, how many have you planted? If you were here from like way back in the day, maybe you have one because you were part of this one. So like one church. He planted 14 churches. He counseled with and was highly respected and loved by the apostles. He sacrificed everything for the sake of the gospel. His wealth, his status, his physical body, every comfort and ease, he sacrificed all of it. He sacrificed all of his time. You probably heard it said that our time is the most valuable thing that we have. He gave all of it to the kingdom of God. He gave absolutely everything to the kingdom of God. 
This man, the chief of sinners, gave everything for the kingdom of God. How is that possible? You need to understand a little bit more about Paul. Paul was well-educated, smart, and quick-witted. As a Pharisee, he received the best education, PhD-level education, top of the class. Paul was the best. He was smart. Peter even admits, he's like, Paul's words are confusing. Half the time, I don't even know what that man's saying. You know, he, he's just, he is off the charts brilliant, and, I, and people just twist his words and make nonsense of it, but he's smart. He knows what he's talking about. That's what Peter says, the great apostle Peter. Paul was smart. He was quick-witted. He'd walk into any situation walk into a city, survey the landscape, and know immediately what he needed to do to share the gospel. Boom. Got it figured out. All right, here's what, we got these statues. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how the gospel, boom. Super great evangelist. Quick-witted, sharp. Could tear down anybody's argument. Somebody try and bring it, boom, 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 boom. Got him. Okay, smart guy. Yet, it was this natural ability all of these skills, all the aptitude that he had that was a liability to God, not an asset. 1 Corinthians 2.2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul understood that all this stuff that he knew, all this that he had, was just in the way of the clear gospel message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know. Philippians 3.8 says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I won't translate word literally. It's rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. It says all of those assets, all of those things that the world thinks are great, they're all garbage and they all get in the way of me proclaiming the clear gospel. I've heard people say, and I've even said it myself, I'd say something like, wouldn't it be amazing if this famous person were to come to Christ? If they would just repent and believe and come to the kingdom of God, how helpful would that be? All of their power, their influence, the amount of people that they can reach, the money that they have, we could use all of those resources to really expand the kingdom of God. And Paul says, all of that is useless. It's all garbage. We don't need it. God doesn't have any use for all of that actually a liability. Your money, your power, your influence can oftentimes just be a hindrance to what God wants to do. And so Paul, God took Paul and took him down to nothing so that God's power might be shown through him. But Paul still struggled with this pride. So not only does he have the previous pride of his life before being a super Pharisee. So now he has the struggle of pride of God is using me in amazing ways. And so he struggles and wrestles with pride constantly. And I imagine at times he even fell into this pride. Patted himself on the back for it. Romans 7.15, Paul confesses, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I want, I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. He does the thing he hates. He's saying, I still sin. But God was gracious to Paul in combating that pride. We often think of God's grace as being 
relief of our physical or emotional pain and suffering. But for Paul, God's grace was allowing him to continue in pain and suffering and giving Paul his strength to endure it. This kept Paul humble and close to the Lord, which is what we all want, rather than sinking into sin and self-righteous uselessness, which was what God had just saved him from. And so for, for that, Paul rejoiced. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. We'll have it on the board as well. He says this, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, be, should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. thank God for your physical sufferings that keep you humble, that remind you of your weakness, remind you of your need for God, that keep you dependent on God, Paul rejoiced and thanked God for. But the question we still have is, is pride really deserving of the title of chief of sinners? Was Paul's sin really so bad? take a quick survey of Paul's view of himself as he matures in the faith. In uh, about AD 55, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, and 9. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He knows who he was, and he was a persecutor of the church, so no doubt he carried that baggage, that emotional baggage of his past. He understood his forgiveness and he walked in that, but he never forgot who he was and it kept him humble. And he knew he didn't deserve to be made an apostle. Matter of fact, literally translated this verse, it says that he was as useful as an aborted stillborn child. Ugh, that is an intense and sobering way to put it. That's how he thought of himself in relation to the other apostles. I am not like them. I don't deserve this one bit. I, I, I'm a, a, an unborn child. I, I'm a stillborn child, useless to God. And yet, God saved me, least of the apostles. Then he writes the book of Ephesians in about eighty sixty. This is about five years later he writes this book. He says this in Ephesians 3.8. To me, though I am the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentile, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he goes from being the least of the apostles to now he says, I am the least of all of the Christians. All of the saints out there, I'm the lowest one. I don't deserve anybody to serve me, to suffer for me, to do anything for me. I'm here to serve and to help and to suffer for them. I'm here for Christ and Him. I just am the worst of all of the Christians. That's his perspective. 
And then in AD 63, he writes 1 Timothy, about three years later. And he says, I am the chief sinner, least of the apostles, least of the saints, greatest sinner. That's who I am. Currently. You see that progression of his understanding as he matures in Christ. He realizes, I am depraved. How can he say this? Listen, he knew the commands of God better than anyone. Well educated in the law. He knew what was right and what was wrong. Furthermore, he had the Holy Spirit inside his heart, empowering him to overcome sin and say no to sin and to do what is right. God is literally empowering him to be able to do this. He saw the face of Jesus. He saw Jesus right there in front of him. How strong would your faith be if Jesus appeared to you right here, right now? How much of your doubt would just flee? And you would know, hey, this is true. If Jesus were right here in front of me, my faith would become sight. That was Paul. He knew Jesus. He got to walk alongside the other apostles who walked with Jesus and hear their stories, their firsthand accounts. What happened? What did Jesus do? What did he say? Paul knew all of these things. He saw firsthand the power of God in performing miracles. He raised somebody from the dead. How strong would your faith be if you raise somebody from the dead? Medically declared dead. You walk over, lay on them, boom, they pop back up. Woo. Hey, I believe. I don't know what I believe, but I believe it. How strong would your faith be if you perform miracles like Paul performed? He saw a perfect vision of heaven. He went up to the third heaven. This is in 2 Corinthians went up to the third heaven. He saw what heaven was like. We have like words and glimpses and a, a vague understanding of what it is heaven, what it is we're going to. I, Paul saw it. He knew where he was going. He knew the righteousness of God. He knew what it was to be in the presence of God Almighty in heaven. Look at Romans 7, 21 through 24. All of that he knew. And yet, here we are, Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? His understanding of the truth, of righteousness, of goodness, the firsthand experiences with God Himself, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, empowering, enabling Him, making His heart right with God, all of those advantages playing together for Him to do what is right. And yet He says in Romans 7, I still sometimes choose to do what is wrong. He still gave into the the temptation of the flesh and sin. How egregious is that sin? That we know what is right to do and yet we choose to do the wrong thing? How egregious to our Savior. 
So when Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, he means it, and it's true. He has every advantage in the world to not sin. And occasionally, he would still sin. If you're not a believer, how severe will your punishment be for having heard the gospel so clearly and yet refused to believe it? Everybody flip over to Hebrews 6. These are scary words. Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a warning to those who grew up in the church who heard the clear gospel but rejected it. There will be different levels of punishment in hell. Luke 12, 47 through 48 says this, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know did not deserve, but and, and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is not teaching a works-based salvation or that you can lose your salvation. Don't hear that. But it is a warning to those who think they are saved and are not. Those who have heard the gospel and rejected it. He's saying that In hell, it will be worse for you than the man who never heard the gospel at all. But if you have heard the gospel clearly this morning and you still reject it, God says, you will be more severely punished for your sins because you knew and rejected it. For those of you who are believers, I find myself in this category. You're only being convicted about it this week, or this day. I've been convicted about this for two weeks now, so... How egregious is our sin when as believers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing the Word of God, knowing right from wrong, and yet still choosing from time to time to sin? We know better. How long does Paul dwell on this? Look at, go back to 1 Timothy. How, how long does Paul dwell on his sinfulness, on him being the chief of sinners? About as long as it takes him to take a breath. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He moves right past it. As Christians, we tend to want to hide and ignore our sins. Well, we want to put on the appearance that we have it all together. 
and in fact, none of us do. We fear that if others see our sin, or if they knew the whole truth, that we maybe get kicked out of the church, or that we would be shaming the church or shaming the name of God. And that's true in one sense. But only if we refuse to repent and turn from our sin. If we do, we are honest with who we are as Paul was honest with who he was. He says, I am the chief of sinners. We are sinners saved by grace that glorifies God. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. He acknowledges it for the sake of the gospel. When we're honest about our sinfulness, the unbelieving world, those who will believe, look at that and say, whoa, God will save that guy. He must be able to save me too. How often in our evangelistic conversations are we open about our sinfulness? That was Paul's greatest selling point. He says, hey, I'm the biggest sinner. I know the right thing to do, and I don't do it. And God is still gracious to me. He still saved me. He hasn't broken his covenant with me. And if he will do that for me, he will do that for you too. You say, yeah, but I'm a big sinner. And he says, no, I am the worst sinner. You didn't even know what to do. I knew what to do, and I didn't do it anyway. He says, God was so merciful and gracious to me that he can be merciful and gracious to you too. That's what he says in verse 16. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, present tense, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. My current sin is an example of God's continued grace in my life, his mercy in not destroying and breaking his covenant with me, because his salvation is based on him and not on me. But we're not to stay in our sinful loathing Paul moves so fast from it. When we stay in our sinful loathing, we turn towards depression and other sins that that are self-focused, self-deprecating. That's not what Paul uses this for. The purpose of, of him reflecting on his sinfulness is to glorify God in his mercy and his grace. If your reflection on your sinfulness turns to a pity party, it's not from the Holy Spirit. The intent is that you would repent of your sin, acknowledge God's forgiveness of you, and praise Him for it. Look at verse 17. He just can't help himself. He says, out of nowhere, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His understanding of the magnitude of his sin causes him to break out in praise to the king of ages. He announces the amazing character of God when he sees his sinfulness and God's amazing mercy pulling him from that continually. So he praises an immortal, invisible one God. There's only one deserving of honor and glory. you're Christian, do you understand how big of a sinner you are here today? Do you understand how egregious your sin is, knowing full well what's right and what is wrong? 
knowing that you were saved by grace. Knowing that you have the Holy Spirit wanting, desiring, pushing you to obey the law of God. And yet, we still sometimes choose sin. How could any of us ever condemn or be angry with someone awareness of our sinfulness should then break out in praise to God in humility and a servant attitude towards others poor sinner are you rejecting the clear gospel of Jesus Christ your Savior are you continuing to reject the Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart that you are a sinner deserving of hell guess I have to apologize because now I've made hell worse for you. There's no apology needed if you would just turn and repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He is calling you to be real and honest about your sin because he wants to forgive it. And he will forgive it. He has promised. He is faithful to forgive. So forsake your sin. Turn to him for forgiveness. Eternal life can be yours today if you'd only repent and believe. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we love you. We thank you for your salvation. It's through you alone that we have salvation. Lord, we, we recognize our sin. We are sometimes amazed that we continue to sin. And yet all it does is make us praise you all the more look forward to the day when we will no longer sin in heaven. You will be glorified. Lord, remind us of your goodness, of your praise, Lord, that we would worship you, not ourselves, that we would forsake our sin, seek forgiveness. Thank you for giving it to us freely. Lord, I pray for the sinners out there who refuse to repent. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, Awaken their heart. Convict them of their sin. Give them the faith that they need to believe, Lord, that you would be glorified in the sinners coming to faith, being forgiven. Lord, we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.